Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce on Practical Multiplication. Practical Multiplication highlights Exponential's core church multiplication frameworks with a focus on the everyday practical nature of how these concepts can help pastors and church planners make disciples and multiply churches. Now, let's join Ralph Moore and Myron Pierce. Hey, welcome to another edition of the Pastor's Guide to Accelerated Church Multiplication with my friend Myron Pierce. And today, we've got a real treat in store for you. If you don't know the term Funkadelic, you will before you're done. And uh, so we're off to the races. We're going to interview uh, my friend Jimmy Calhoun. He was a big rocker in the 70s, uh, played with the names, and uh, then stumbled his way into Hope Chapel, got connected with Jesus, decided he wanted to become a pastor, asked the guys, can I become a janitor at the church so I can just hang out and, and, and learn from you guys? So he's the only janitor we ever had who drove an XKE Jaguar to church became a church planner and a missionary. He's going to tell us all about that in a minute. But I just want to introduce my partner, Myron. Go for it. What's happening, everybody? It is good to be back. Hopefully you have had, uh, you found that these these times together with Ralph and I and many of our guests have been simulating and encouraging to say the least. We are looking forward to listening to and talking to our brother, Jimmy Calhoun, Hopefully I can get an autograph, a digital autograph by the time we're done so I can sell it on Amazon because I'm a side hustle pastor. And uh, Ralph, you can take it away. <laughs> okay. So Jimmy, you want to just say hi to everybody and uh, make sure they get a chance to see your face on there. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Jimmy Calhoun. Glad to be here. I'm glad that you're having me. So to me, it's an interesting thing. I, you know, I, I, I was talking to Jimmy earlier, and um, all of us are, you know, getting up there in years. Jimmy's about ten years younger than me, I think. But um, you know, we lived through the '70s, and you know, there are all these angry rockers, and 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 the guys that you know, I was listening to their music, I was looking up to them. Uh, Jimmy played with Sly and the Family Stone, Doctor John. If you guys are old enough to remember this. I mean, these guys were the pioneers of funkadelic music. Uh, they came out of the Bay Area. They, I mean, just they rocked the world. Jimmy played with John Lennon. He played with every name, Jimi Hendrix. And, uh, and yet look how mellow he is today. And it's interesting what time does to us all and, and, and how it kind of shapes us and changes us. And I think that's really cool. But, uh, Jimmy, as we get started today, I, I know your story pretty well because of Hope Chapel and our relationship. But I, you said some things to me earlier on a podcast that we did about disciple making and discipleship and how, uh, go into it a little bit, the story about you got in some trouble, 
you ended up going to all white high school and pretty <laughs> soon you saw the guys that you decided, I mean, first you, you chose off the biggest guy in the school, tried to punch his lights out and he laughed at you. And then you decided these are guys here that are, that are going places. I want to be like them. And then, and then tell us how that rolled over into your Hope Chapel pathway of, I want to be a pastor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I did, I, I, I was kind of an angry kid, and uh, I never really said no to an opportunity to be in an athletic competition that involved fists. And so I was getting in a lot of fights, and my dad came in and said, well, if you're going to keep fighting, we're going to put you in Golden Gloves. So I started in junior Golden Gloves, and I went to Golden Gloves, and that didn't work. And I, I kind of, I got thrown out of the entire, well, I did, I got thrown out of the entire school system uh, in, in the city I was living in. And I wound up going to an all white school. There's 1400 students and me and one other girl named Lily, who looked like me, who was a African American. And uh, I, I ran into these two guys uh, on the football team, Jim Heckendorn and Mike Goodman. And within a short while, I just looked at them I, from a distance, of course, and I watched how they carried themselves and who they were. And subsequent to that, I found myself wearing wingtips and a modular shirt and a little, <laughs> I became a preppy real quick within you know, six or seven months. And out of that, I realized that it, the self that I had created was more of a construct than it was really who I was. And uh, Paul talks about taking off one garment and putting on another garment. And I realized that went a little bit deeper than just uh, figurative, you know, clothing. That actually some of the personality traits that I, I acquired them by looking at others around me. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, Down Smith stabbed the teacher, pulled a knife on and rather than the rest of the class thinking that was terrible we all thought wow man that guy's got some, <laughs> you know he's got some he's got some nerve i want to be like him you don't take nothing from the teacher you know and that wasn't really the the attitude that was going to get you going far in life and uh so uh, to there was a metamorphosis in a, in a short while of being from one person to another person. And that, was, that wasn't even a conversion experience. That didn't happen until I, I did find Hope Chapel. Uh, I was playing with a guy, Buddy Miles, who I met with Jimi Hendrix. And we lived down in Manhattan Beach. He was living with me. And we used to go to the Lucky Market that was uh, adjacent to where Hope Chapel was and do various things. and. Uh, Within a couple of years, it was time for me do, to do, wait, wait, wait. do do various things. <clears throat> what what things were you doing in that phone booth next to the church? <laughs> well, we were we were calling uh, to Hollywood, back to Hollywood, for some entertainment enhancers that were popular at the time, and uh, so we would stand there. Buddy, buddy was a very large body. A bigger pardon? I said entertainment enhancers that you put in your body. Yeah, we would consume them. You're right. That was a, that was a, the method, the delivery system, and uh, so we. I didn't know at the time though. There they had Friday night services, and so uh, the phone booth was just at the corner of the building, 
And there, there had to have been many times when Buddy and I were standing there on the phone trying to make contact when Hope Chapel people were walking by us thinking, oh, look at those guys. <laughs> you know, we got to stay clear of them. Not knowing within two short years I was going to be leading them in music. And uh, so it, it's, it's, it's great how things turn around. But, but as far as discipleship, uh, Ralph, I came the year Ralph left. And I think it's uh, most of what I know about church I learned from Ralph even though I didn't know Ralph. Now, how did that happen? Well, because Ralph implanted and inculcated certain things in, in the DNA of Hope Chapel. And when I joined and came into it, it just kind of seeped into me. So when I did meet him two or three years later, we were already old friends and old, old buddies. And I would tell people around the world that I'm a disciple of Ralph Moore, even though there wasn't that much of a one-to-one. -one. And so discipleship, it's kind of, we used to say caught, it's caught. And he didn't really have to tell me anything. What he did was show me things, and uh, both in person and afar. So, uh. so, so pick up a little bit from, uh, and then we're gonna hand this over to Myron, but pick this up a little bit from how you uh, had admired these two guys in high school, and it, and it caused a metamorphosis. You got into Hope Chapel, and I mean, obviously, in Hope Chapel, you, you walk in and you've been playing with Jimi Hendrix and Sly Stone, they're going to pay attention to you, but you are paying attention to them, and, uh, and, and you're going, there's guys I want to be like, and that ended up with you ultimately planting a, a Hope Chapel in Sherman Oaks, uh, going to Belize as a missionary, uh, doing microchurch right now in, in Texas. Uh, but 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 there was that there was that I'm going to say moment, but it probably took several weeks or months when you saw somebody and you saw something, because I think that's what's missing in what we call discipleship or disciple making today, it, it is is we're always trying to you know pedal a course on people. Uh, there was something deeper that happened in your life. Well, for me, it was uh, it. it for well, Mike and Jim were uh, all American uh, football players, Mike in particular. And so I was athletic, and I so I, I started patterning myself after him, emulating the things that I saw him do. And so the connection is when I got to Hope Chapel, um, I started emulating the things that I saw the many church pastors and. Uh, the guy who took Ralph's place named Zach Nazarian, uh, I started emulating what I saw them do. And it didn't take long for me to, to realize that it was a, a church planting movement, even though it wasn't, it wasn't discussed like, here's 14 steps to plant a church. The conversation was, the best way we know to evangelize the world is by starting churches. And we do that by finding people who have a gift, an entrepreneurial gift, and are interested. And we do that through many churches. They start a mini, one mini church, start two or three, and after you start two or three, we figure that person has some, might have a gifting and a calling. So if the two of those things mesh, then we send them out. And I was one of those people. <laughs> I, I 
I had uh, I quit music, and I remember this the Bonnie Raitt's uh, saxophone player, the leader, her band leader. I walked down Pier Avenue one day, and at the Lighthouse, there was a bar, and I heard the saxophone. And I I went in, and the guy goes, "What are you doing down here?" And I said, "Well, I I live here." And he says, "Well." What, you still got your equipment? I go, yeah. He says, well, I'll give you 1400 a week uh, to go play with this woman, Martha Davis. She, and I said, well, I thought about it, and I was making about $6 an hour <laughs> sucking rugs <laughs> from 12 to 6. And I thought, no, I can't do that because I, I'm committed to this thing called church planting. And so a lot of things uh, happened out of out of being accepted and also just being included. I was included right away after about a year and a half. And, and that's an important word, including, because that's something I've found we don't do a very good job of. Uh, so. That's good. Myron, what you thinking? Yeah. Um, no, thanks for, thanks for sharing. Um, I guess one of my thoughts was you mentioned um, the idea of, of uh, is you know church planting or disciple making is caught. Um, what are what are some other things that you learned early on um, in your Hope Chapel days when it comes to disciple making that would be advantageous for some young fellows like us to know? Well. The, the one thing that I came away with was releasing, uh, releasing people's gifts. And uh, one of the, the beautiful things about uh, the Hope experience was the diversity in, in um, theological understanding. And uh, I remember, see, here's an interesting thing. I'm not sure I, I heard this from Ralph's lips directly, or I heard it from Zach's lips directly, but uh, we, Hope Chapel was right on the corner uh, of this, these two major arteries. And we, we were talking about starting churches, and I was told that if you're smart, you'll just go right across the street and rent an office or a building there and ha hang the Hope Chapel shingle there. Because out of the 3,000 people who attend here every week, probably a lot of them don't really like me that well. And you could start a church over there and they'll, they'll probably like you. And, and so the thing was, it, it was not only releasing people, but not being uh, overprotective of the brand to the point where uh, you can, it, it's better to multiply the brand than to build this, this large, um, I don't want to say kingdom, but I mean, this large, very large church, uh, so I came away with that, and we started five churches ourselves. So this Sunday morning, even though we don't even have a building, there's still about 1,100 people to go to churches I started because, um, because of that fact. It was as soon as I could meet somebody who wanted to start a church, we'd, we'd do it. Our first church in Sherman Oaks, uh, before I started taking a salary, somebody was going to Sacramento, and they needed a few bucks. So we took a very large offering and sent them out. And that was just kind of the ethos that I picked up. But I picked it up without somebody having to really tell me or, did, or reading it in, 
in, in, a, in a pamphlet or something. It was just releasing people's gifts. So unpack that process for us of maybe if you can um, describe the process of what releasing looked like with you and then how you perpetuate it and, you know, multiply that out in, in other leaders. Okay, good. Yeah. I came from a, an American Baptist background. And so I went through, we had a pastor's factory. I went through with seven other guys. When we, when we finished and we were all licensed, one went out and started a, um, I think, an evangelical covenant church. And it, although we were ordained in a Pentecostal denomination, and uh, the other two started something that would look more like um, a Willow Creek. And so right away, there was a diversity. There was a, there was a split. So I started in, in a park in Sherman Oaks under, with a guitar and one other guy. And we, we played there every Sunday. We'd go up there from 2 to 5 and hang out. And then we finally rented a building. And the first service, there was about 100 and 110 people from us going out just going up there by ourselves and making friends, going door to door and doing those kind of things. And then uh, once we started services, we heard about this guy who was having difficulty getting funding going to Sacramento to start a hope there. So we took a very large offering. And the thing is, I wasn't friends with the guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I just, uh, I knew that there was this, this hope thing and I'm invested in that. So I invested in him. And so in that sense, there was this release that I didn't have to build and, and check him out and go through a lot of hoops and, and those things. There's just this understanding that, that that's, this is what we're going to do and we're going to kind of conquer the world. And that's a carryover from rock and roll because when you're traveling on the road as a rock and roll band, it's kind of you against the world. There's this, there's this little fraternity of people who are all doing the same thing. And even though you're not alike, you're alike, if that makes any sense. And so you're out to, to take over the world. And church planting is kind of like that. Birds of a feather, you know what you... You can smell somebody who wants to go out and do that, who, who catches it. That's the, you know, that you know, we're going to reach Tokyo and Buenos Aires, and we're going to get to, we're going to get into Sydney, Australia. We're going to, you know, nothing's ever too small. No, no, every thought that you have, you go, I thought that for a good reason. You know, maybe I, sh I remember one last story. I was I was on on the steps of Hope Chapel, and this guy named Bill Gross. He goes, well, "What are you going to do?" I said, "I don't know." I'm not sure, Sherman Oaks. And I said, I've always had this heart for Amsterdam. He goes, well, if you go, I'll go with you. You know, it was that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, so for, for that fleeting moment, you know, these two little guys on the steps, you're, they're dreaming and scheming even about how we can get over to Amsterdam, uh, Holland. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, in the among black pastors, um, there's typically not a conversation around church planting. Like we're not, there's not the idea of let's plant churches. Uh, some of it is centered around what we do on Sunday morning, certainly. But why is that? Why do you think um, typical black led churches are 
the, the focus is Sunday versus the idea of church planting or even disciple making? Well, uh, the only, I could not speak from personal experience. I could speak from my brother's experience. He, my, the backstory is both of my grandparents uh, were pastors and my family's always been in ministry. One was a Baptist and one was a Methodist. My brother went to a Baptist seminary, graduated and promptly uh, planted, Baptist seminary planted a Methodist church. And that's, it was economics. There, there was really, there's, denominationally, we don't really see the need to, to divide ourselves and, and, and multiply, which is what um, Ralph inculcated in us, that it's, it's better that whether you having 300 people divide it and have two 150-person churches, because out of that, you get two pastors, three, four uh, assistant pastors, and more people are growing in ministry and learning how to do this stuff, and then they can divide and, and then just go out and out and out and out in a ripple effect. My brother, when he planted a church, he had to do it by himself. And um, it, it, as the congregation grew, that was, that was how he supported himself. And mm. there was never any thought of, uh, I, I'm comfortable enough now that I can actually look at somebody in the congregation and send them out. It was, so yeah. that's probably the best I can do. Yeah. Ralph, what, what, what stories are you thinking in your head right now? Anytime Ralph and I interview somebody, there's always a point he wants to make and it. And, and in order to make that point, he has to tell a story. So Ralph, I want you to make a point and then I want you to tell a story. <laughs> it, it, his two points. One is before we're done with this interview, Jimmy, we need to be talking about the books you've written. We need to be talking a little bit about uh, Oxford university the, the embrace that's been there. But I, I want you to uh, take us into the rock and roll world a little bit. Um, there's there's some guys of my age on here who were listening. You know, when 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 you were singing different strokes for different folks and stuff like that, uh, we're you know we're young guys going wow uh, to this music. Tell us a little bit about that world. Uh, name some names because you know make some of us old guys happy make make some of these young guys like myron who were born too late to have experienced the joys of the 70s make them envious of, of all that so tell us a little bit about what you did in europe traveling tours all that kind of stuff but but then um I, I, there, there's something you've told me before about how the the rock world was much more accepting and and begin to cross these racial barriers and all this stuff that we're struggling with today uh, before the church ever really woke up and thought about it 2,000 years too late. Um, yeah, well, and, then, and, then, and then give us a little bit of, because you have a personal philosophy of racial reconciliation that I think really works. It fits with Myron's. Um, that's partly why I wanted you guys to know each other. So, but, but do, take, take us back to the rock world and, and the love that was there in the 70s you know, while the dope blonde was going on and all that, but but there was something good happening. Well, work from I, there. Yeah, yeah. I the seventies 
followed the 60s, which <laughs> that's simple math, but the 60s were a watershed moment in American culture when the hippie movement uh, caught on to this thing about peace, and which, uh, in my view, the Christian church should have a monopoly on. But uh, it was really something that people were pursuing, uh, and it was, they were pursuing it actionably trying to make some demonstrable way of, of, of loving each other. And so there would be these great big festivals of love-ins like Woodstock and where people could, large numbers of people could gather uh, peacefully. But not only were they large numbers, but they were what we were coming to call multi-ethnic and interracial. And so I saw a lot of, we took one private plane to Nova, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And we were going to do a festival up there. Well, we did the festival up there. But on, on the plane, you know, there were the Temptations and our band. And there, there, was, there was a cross-section of, of different kind of musical genres, which also are represented racially, all on one private, on this jumbo jet, 747 or something, that was charted for us. And we're all having a great time. And... I've yet to go to a conference where the same thing has happened, where, these, where there's a, a diverse group of, of pastors spending a considerable amount of time just being with each other and loving each other and sharing what it is they do. So it, it seems like music was easier to share than some of the other things that, <laughs> that we should be sharing. And I, I, I may have gone off a little bit, but... Uh, as far as my personal experiences, I actually don't, uh, I've kind of brushed them so far in the back, in the re recesses of my mind, I don't remember too many of them. And it was intentional, but somebody's doing a book that they sent me a, a chapter on, uh, and I'm in it. And so they asked, they wanted to make sure they were checking, fact checking actually. So apparently we were playing this club in London uh, with the Dr. John band, that was. And uh, that night, The Who was there and The Beatles and The Rolling Stones and Cat Stevens. And there was a, the biggest thing I took away from, there was a, a, a strong can-do attitude. I mean, we thought we could rock the world and change the world through music. And that... I get back to hope, but I felt like that was the same attitude and mindset that by church planting, we could rock the world <laughs> and change the world, if, if, if you don't mind me coupling rock and church planting. But that, that's what I came away with, and I'm not sure whether it was that, an extension of my past experience or that was really is going on, but that's certainly what I felt. So, uh, yeah, I... I as far as my own personal life, I know what it's like to play for a few hundred thousand people, stand there and, and hold my guitar and watch people go nuts and realize they're going nuts for the five of you. You know, <laughs> I know what that's like. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to have limos as my mode of transportation uh, provided by somebody. I know what it's like to take a private jet. I know what it's like to shake a president's hand uh, as a result of music. I can be at a party, and uh, but uh, actually, I, I I'm having much more satisfaction of a song that my friend wrote 
uh, having much more satisfaction going into the disability places I go to and and the projects where I'm at where where we where we do uh, our top program and so yeah. and your friends still can't get no satisfaction huh I don't um, know he's still going around <laughs> I know it's pretty cool um, he just doesn't stop listen um, talk talk to us because you've written in the books and I'd like to bridge into the books a little bit um, eventually I want to really get there because I want to promote your books for one thing but but in the books um, you, you you seem to prescribe friendship as as a panacea to some of the problems that we're having I mean I for one think black lives matter you know maybe there's a Marxist organization out there behind that and so people react against that but they ought to not react against the fact that human life matters and you 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 said a, a used the term a few minutes ago a, a monopoly the church should have the monopoly on on the message that black lives matter or that asian lives matter we, we should have a monopoly on this thing called love your neighbor as yourself and it it, it hasn't happened uh, as well as it could happen it is happening in some places and we don't want to ever take away from that. That's wonderful. But you you talk a lot about just relationships, people knowing each other. And um, it seems like we want to always fall back to some system, to some 14 steps, to something that's cumbersome and governmental and nonsensical, rather than just getting down in the dirt with each other. Talk to us just from your heart, just anything you want to say. Yeah, well, uh, the thing that I've come to understand is uh, I read a lot, and I like to read a lot of philosophy books. I think that philosophy is uh, the secular theology, and so if that makes sense. So I, I, I've read quite extensively, and, and Aristotle said something very interesting about virtues. Uh, he said that we all experience the virtues the same way. And, by, and I can read between the lines where he believes that everyone experiences life the same way. And my, my personal experience is nothing can be farther from the truth. We don't experience life the same way. We, we, we don't share, we share the same geographical location, the land that we walk on, but we're walking around with two different assumptions of, of what it means to, to be human because of what's happened, because of our history. And so we, we don't run into conflict so much as we run into misunderstanding or misperception. Uh, my friend Marvin and I, uh, Marvin was a janitor <laughs> at, the, at the church that was giving us um, space. The, the Episcopal Church with the Midian. And they asked, they were having, they were at a quandary. They, they wanted to get rid of a, a stained glass of Robert E. Lee and half the congregation didn't want to and the other half did. So they asked Marvin and I to come by and share. So we did. We came by and shared, openly shared, and we shared our life experience. Well, his life experience is quite different from mine. 
he started out like me, except that he wound up in prison for a considerable amount of years. I, avo I avoided that, but my guitar got me away from that. By the time I was 19 or 20, I was already in Europe uh, playing major festivals. And so uh, the, my, after our introductory years or growing up years, uh, our lives, uh, they, they were no longer parallel. But what was parallel was our experiences. Uh, and we were sharing about what, it, what it's like to even walk into a 7-Eleven and uh, get the stare and the suspicion, or walking in a market and uh, a clothing store and being followed around, getting that extra scrutiny. And we're sharing, and both of our experiences are identical, even though our socioeconomic status had not been identical our black experience was different. And most of the people in the congregation were skeptical. Um, when the question and answer period came, oh, we don't really, well, maybe there was another explanation. Maybe you did this. And, may, and so they weren't hard-hearted. They were here to hear us. But they didn't understand it from their life experience because it had never happened to them. It was unimaginable that it could happen that many times and that consistently. They, sh they thought, certainly what you're both sharing had to have been an anomaly. It and so when you start from that position that, you, that you, you don't understand what the other one is saying, it's very difficult to, to build a bridge to where you trust each other. Now, on the other side of that, Mike Goodman and Jim Heckendorn became some of my closest friends, and I'm still friends with them to this day, to this minute. And, and we have been close. So when I'm with my, the kids I grew up with, my black friends, and they want to say, well, you know, they think this, and they're doing this. Well, it's true. We've had to, we've experienced certain things as black people. But Mike and Jim certainly never woke up one morning thinking, well, what can we do to, to, make it, to make some misery for those people who live on the other side of town? So there's that, that element, there's misperception about what the other's thinking because primarily because you can never experience what their, how their lives were. So in that sense, Aristotle was wrong. And uh, we don't all experience life the same way. And we have to give each other grace and space to acknowledge whatever it is they're telling you. They're not saying it out of a hard heart or a mean heart. It's out of their life experience. And that's been the challenge for bridging Austin. We, that's what we're trying to get people to understand in a conciliatory manner. So, so that we always think the best of the other. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes I'm the white guy, uh, by the way, I am, mm -hmm. uh, who doesn't understand, who doesn't have these feelings. I'm, I mean, I'm not a racist. I don't get up in the morning thinking, how can I make life miserable for my friend Myron uh, because he's black. So I'm assuming then, because I don't feel this way, well, then this must not exist. But it does exist. Systemic racism is, is there, and, it, and it's often, you know, just people don't understand it. It's when we begin to become friends with people and, and, and begin to have empathy 
that we begin to have the capacity to overcome this thing that's that's in us that I that I think is probably a both a, a in in terms of this the, this exchange black white it's not just black white when I go to Japan I'm on the other end of the stick uh, foreigners are always suspect in Japan uh, so you you know so I've I've experienced this in some other cultures but just in 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 terms of a of a black white thing some of it is we just need to learn to talk to each other and and learn some empathy are, are you asking i'm asking yeah yeah uh well we live in our country is is found is is based in binaries we're having an election real soon and uh people are essentially either a Democrat or they're essentially a Republican. So we're used to binaries. We're used to you either are a um, Dallas Cowboy fan or if you're, if you're a Cowboy fan, then you have to hate the Philadelphia Phillies or something. You know, on down the line, we're just kind of, we're comfortable. If I'm this, then I'm definitely not that. And so when you have a, when we have an external like skin color as being the first, the first thing you notice about a person is their skin color, then the eyes interpret that. And it goes into the brain and you tell yourself a story. And that story then becomes your reality. And it's very difficult for you to, <laughs> to add another chapter or subtract a chapter or to be self-critical enough to say, Am I that story that those thoughts that just came through my mind? Are they accurate? Because your eyes have seen something that you think tell you something when in actuality your eyes only saw a person who looked different than you. And it and, and seeing that different person didn't tell you anything, what one thing about them. You don't know that they they uh, are a vegetarian, you don't know whether they, you know, they're. They've got seven PhDs. You don't know whether they shoot pool for a living. You don't know anything about them. But your eyes have told you something and you're off and running. And so that's a huge obstacle for us to overcome here as, as people. We, we have to kind of put the lid on that first thought, that first impression. And uh, it's difficult to do because it takes intentionality. You have to go, I'm going to reserve judgment, which which is one more step than you do in any other interpersonal relationship. When you're around your folks, then you're on to other things. Do, you, do we have an affinity? Do we like this? Do, do, am I a sports nut or a, you know, a, a book nut? Which one? And then you decide friendships that way. But when you have this obstacle of, that, of this, of this um, skin color, this obsession with skin color, it makes it it makes it difficult and in and, and rhythm and grace I ask people to consider if if we're going to go by something anatomical like how you're built to decide who is who why not earwax there's dry wax and there's 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 kind of fluid wax let's make that the determiner. And we'll say, well, I only hang out with dry wax people. I'm terribly sorry. You can't, <laughs> you can't I'm a dry wax person, and you're going to have to go down the street to find some fluid. 
and, and, and that way I, I try to make it a little bit humorous to, for us to take a, a look at ourselves as you know, wh- why are we why are we deciding things on the on the basis that we do the bases that we do. Yeah. Good, Myron, what you got? I I just think Jimmy, you said such a mouthful that um, that I think can help a lot of people. One of the things you said is when we see somebody, we instantly tell ourselves a story. And I often wonder if the stories we tell ourselves we've inherited um, by the families we grew up in. And, um, and so like, that, that was really good for me. The second thing you said is um, we have to learn, like the whole idea of reserving judgment if somebody is out there watching or listening right now, walk us through how to um, how to identify the stories we're telling ourselves. Number one, and then what's the process like to to rebel against and reserve judgment? Well, Myron, it, the interesting thing for me is I came up primarily living in in a white world after I left a primarily black world. You know, there was a, there was a point in my life where I, I was taken out of that and over to there do some, you know, I got in trouble and they didn't want, (laughs) I had to leave, but uh, I left. And so I, then rock and roll took me deeper into, I didn't stay in the punk world so much as the rock world, which is primarily white and, so I've been in that world, and I went to Hope, and at the time it was a, it would be categorized as a white church, and the churches I planted, ironically, were all po- mostly populated by white people. <laughs> so it's just been one continuum. And so when we came to Austin and I got involved with the disability movement, I had to learn some lessons about what it meant to be inclusive and to uh, reserve judgment and withhold Mm -hmm. judgment. And that came to be, I was working in a very large Willow Creek church plant here. And I was at one of the campuses is doing the small groups for him. And a buddy of mine who played in the beach boys was coming to town and he had gotten, he became paralyzed in a, a surfing accident in California. So he started this thing called trap which is a rhythmic arts project and uh, he's a quadriplegic now and so he came to austin and I, he, I said well i'll give you a hand eddie i'll come over and do some stuff and it was a roman catholic church out on the north side of town and we went over i drove up thinking there's going to be uh you know 10 20 30 people truck and bus after bus load after bus load three or four hundred kids there were living with a disability and i thought where are these people through the week where do they live what are they doing so i investigated and then i I ran into a, a lawyer and he introduced me to his daughter so i found this this whole new world of disability opened up they have day halves where 80 to 100 people stay there all day and do arts and crafts well, here's the thing. The first time I went in there, it was like, ew, ew, hmm, ew. I made a judgment about everybody in that room, and it wasn't a good one. It was a, out of fear, and I didn't understand, and I didn't know how to behave. I was, I was afraid I was going to say the wrong thing. I was afraid I was going to do the wrong thing. And 
so the the lesson I learned there was those kind of uh, not knee jerk necessary visceral reactions are probably natural, and they're going to happen. But in my case, I made up my mind I was going to involve myself in that uh, community, and I did whatever whatever I had to do and overcame my fears and my apprehension and, and just kept coming back. And the more I came back, the less it was unusual for me. The more I, I did not necessarily reserve judgment, but the longer I was there, those judgments became farther and in between. I stopped making them. They just kind of fell off like a bad habit. <laughs> because I think a lot of the judgments we do make are, they come, they're, they're a habit. I see this, I'm supposed to think this way. I saw that, I should think this way. And you get used to, I saw that, but then I'm not thinking that way, and before you know it, it's gone. That's good. Jimmy, um, you've become quite an accomplished author. You know, you, you're a reader, I'm a, I'm a reader. One of the things that we have in common is that we love books. Um, you get into philosophy and stuff that's honestly way over my head. And, uh, and I read history for, for fun. You know, that's my delight. But um, uh, you, you've been recognized. I, I mean, you know, I write books and, and, and church planters read them. Uh, you, you write books. Uh, Oxford University pays attention to you. That's been a whole other trip. Um, talk, talk, talk us through the three books that are the, the three main books that are out there. Just, just kind of work us through them. Uh, the books are available, by the way, on, on Amazon. You can go to look for Jimmy Calhoun on Amazon. You should, by the way, uh, because he's got some things to say that would speak into the tension that's going on in the United States right now in some wonderful ways, um, basically using your, your rock and church experience as launch pad, but just kind of walk us through the books a little bit. Yeah, well, the first, book, uh, the first book was uh, A Story of Rhythm and Grace and what rock and roll can uh, teach the world about uh, healing the racial divide. And a lot of that was about what we've been talking today about Hope Chapel and uh, church planting and, and being open to, having, to doing what's necessary to have a multi-ethnic church, which requires uh, one more step. Yeah. It requires you being willing to, to see the taste and preferences of the people coming in as legitimate and not assuming that they're just going to like what you do because they're there. I mean, that you have to, to show some consideration. So I had learned that very well in the rock and roll era because you know, one night I would be playing with Rare Earth and we would play to an audience. If it was Alice Cooper's audience, even though we sold as many records, they didn't like, they weren't that happy with what we were playing. So you, you, even though there were people there, you, you knew you had to take into consideration who they were. And a lot of times when we, we, we have a church that's populated by 80% or 90% of one ethnicity, we assume if you came to visit that it must be you like what we like and you think like we think. 
and you you never it never crosses your mind to make friends with the new people and ask them what 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 do you like what do you think about that and be willing to hear something some criticism so that was the um, the story of rhythm and grace and then as we just talked about disability I realized that. I had missed something about healing the racial divide, and that's perception. So I wrote The Art of God saying, asking people to learn to look for the beauty, the inherent beauty in every human being that's ever been born. And that's what I had to do in the disability community. I had to learn to walk in, and instead of saying, God, why is this person, why is one eye going this way? And, 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 and just the condition they were in, and Instead of looking them at them as a variant, as some sort of something not desirable, finding the beauty. And to be honest, after 10 years, I found I'm able to look at some of my friends. They look at, you name a celebrity. They're as beautiful to me as they are. And not in, not in, not not in a perfunctory, like, not, not, I'm, I'm not making it up. I mean, it's not like uh, I'm covering it. I, I, I see the beauty and I, I, I see the, I, I don't have to go into the place thinking in the back of my mind, why did you create them, God? You know, why is this? You know, the, the, the devil, you know, I don't have to think those things any longer because I know they belong. They, they, I started seeing them as the art of God. And that, that whole book talks about music and it talks about uh, how, there's, how people react and respond to music differently. But when it comes to humanity, we have a hard time doing that. And so you can learn to, to see the beauty in, in Brahms or Bach and the Beatles and whoever. You can learn to do that. And if you can learn to do that, you can see, learn to see the beauty in white lives matter if there's such a thing, black lives matter, and any, any other life that matters. But, and you can see the beauty in them. And it's, a, it's an acquired thing. You can, I remember in school we had to take art appreciation. And that gives you the skills to, to look at something a little bit differently and say, oh, yeah, I see now. Now I see why this Van Gogh guy is a big deal. It's all in the colors. I thought that I should have been looking at the, uh, the way that the bodies were shaped, but I missed it. And we miss it a lot with people. So that was the art of God. And then as Ralph mentioned earlier, uh, I, I wrote one about the Ten Commandments called The Sounds of Love and Grace. And I realized that we were not listening to each other. And, and I think we've talked, we touched on that uh, a lot in this conversation, is listening to somebody in a way that you want to hear what they're saying. We, we read books about uh, when you, somebody's talking, you're, 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 you're hearing them, but you're waiting for them to stop talking so you can give your, <laughs> so you can correct them or, or tell, you know, put, interject what it is you want to say. That's not listening. That's hearing. So I drew a distinction between hearing because and listening. In the Shema, in the, in the Old Testament, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is, is one. That hear there is not the, not, not the hearing, it's listening. And, and, you, and the proof of that is when you, 
when you're saying it in some congreg in some Jewish congregations, they cover the eyes. They why do they cover the eyes if they're if they're reading something about hearing? Because they don't want to get distracted. They know it's possible. It's possible to hear without listening. So when we say we're going to meet and we're we're going to bring the the white Methodist church down the street with a black uh, Baptist church down the street, we're all going to get together and have a conversation. That's well and good, unless you're willing to to know up front that when you get there, you're willing to listen to them and believe whatever it is they're saying is legitimate, even if it's nothing more than their feelings. Their feelings are legitimate, and, and they need to be valued, accepted at face value. So that book's about how learning to listen and the value in listening, and uh, uh, even say that there's visual listening when we when we read scripture. We don't read it like uh, Ralph reads history or I read philosophy. You know, I want, I, it's not, I want to find out what my, Martin Heidegger thinks. That's well and good. But when, when I read scripture, I want to hear in that listening sense God. I want God's word to touch my heart, you know, where I live. I, I, don't, I just don't want to be able to come back and talk about a lot of facts. Remember... Uh, certain facts and propositions and talk to somebody, well, Heidegger said this. Well, you know, Foucault didn't really like that. That's well and good. That's it. That's fun. That expands the mind, but it doesn't change my heart. And so listening, when we learn to listen to each other, it changes our heart. When I listen to Mike Goodman, I change my heart about white people. You know, when you listen to Jimmy Calhoun, I hope you change your heart about black people <laughs> to some degree. You know, I, I want you to be able to, to be open to listen to what I'm saying and hear my heart, hear the love that's there. And, but that takes a willingness on everybody's part. And no, I've said enough. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Myron. Man, I could listen to you for days, man. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> Um, one of the things that you said that I want to bring out um, for our audience is you said um, when I see people, um, or, or to some extent you said they, they belong. And, and it dawned on me that that has to be an inherent value in a person's life when it comes to somebody different than them, because the idea that you belong yeah, buddy. is antithetical to right. racism. Yeah, buddy. And I, and I think the culprit is the lies we tell ourselves that somehow you're, you're somehow you don't belong. I mean, that's been the narrative. You don't belong. And, um, and so I just, man, everything that you said, like just about the idea of listening and how that's the vehicle to personal heart transformation. And I mean, we, we see the climate we're in right now, you know, politically, COVID, race, and there's a lot of talking, but there's not a lot of listening. That's certainly true. Yeah. Well, thank you for, I mean, that, that right there is, 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 is something I think we, we need to learn, relearn, and, and most certainly unlearn things that are keeping us from, from embracing one another and the whole idea of the whole idea of you belong. I mean, that really struck a chord with me. Yeah. Tell, tell us, tell us, oh, go ahead. 
No, no, you said something beautiful right there. You used the word unlearn, and it goes back to my time at Hope. Uh, coming to faith, I didn't learn how to be a Christian and learn and start learning how to pastor people and, as a mini church pastor. And then uh, I had to unlearn how to be a rock and roller. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's more to learning than just adding to where you are, to who you are and what you are at this particular time. And it's just as important as incumbent upon you to cert, to try to learn how to unlearn some of the things that, uh, that, that are holding you back from, from going forward. So that, I love that word. That just jumped right out at me because it's certainly true. And it's, a, it, it's something the older we get, the more we need to remember that we should unlearn some things. Yeah, otherwise, we'll, we'll just be stagnant and set in, set in our ways that are maybe not that beneficial. Nothing wrong with being, nothing wrong with the old ways. Yeah. But there's there's always room for the different ways, and it's, so it's not a bifurcation. It's it's possible to to be holistic in that sense. So, good stuff. If if someone um wanted to read one of your books, which one which which book would you say? Hey, this is the book I think you need to read first. Which one would that be, and why? Well, the last one is is touched on where we're at as a society and a culture right now. Uh, it it. It was released in February, and then two months later, we were unable to to uh, promote it. I, w- I was scheduled to speak in Oxford at a, a couple of venues in uh, Scotland and London, and we had to cancel them. Mm-hmm. But it, it touches on uh, – in my neighborhood, there's a lot of um, American flags with, with, with blue stripes on them, uh, Blue Lives Matter. And, uh, and it's come down to basically where the perception is if you, if you are law and order, then you must be against the people who live on the other side of town. And if you live on the other side of town, then you really don't want law and order. And that's becoming a narrative. And I touched on that book because it, it's uh, neither of them are true or both of them are as false as can be, whichever way you want to do it. I mean, there's, there's not, no community is a monolith. And people just don't think like that. They're, they're, everything comes in isolation. So I tell a story about my next door neighbor, and I make up this hypothetical guy. And he's a white police officer and 35, and he belongs to the Baptist church down the street. And he's my neighbor. I go over to his house, and we have barbecues. Everybody loves him in the neighborhood, and, and he coaches soccer, does all these things. And then he goes out on a shift one time, and he's a police officer. He goes out on a shift one time, and he's involved in a shooting that the other side of town is very angry about. But they know I live next door to him. So next time I go into church to speak, they go, well, what about old officer, what's his name, Ross? And I go, well, he's a good guy. How can he be a good guy if he just did that? Well, the, the, no one is just one thing. Everybody mm-hmm. is more than one thing. And if that guy made a mistake that day, I wasn't there. If he made a mistake, he's still the same guy that I went to have barbecues with and that everybody loves. 
but he's still the same guy that if if he did something aberrant and he shouldn't have done in his in his official capacity, then that will sort itself out in in, in the proper form. So it, it's that's what the sounds of love and grace is about. It's about learning to listen and learning to 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 love. <laughs> that's that's basically it. And so that book would be it. Well, we have reached uh, the end of our time. Um, how can we um, find those books? And then how can we, if we want to just find out more about you, where can we go? What website? Where, where can we go? Okay. Yeah, thank you. My, uh, Amazon.com, as Ralph mentioned earlier, is the best. But my name is spelled like Hendrix, if you know that spelling. J-I-M-I Calhoun, which is C-A-L-H-O-U-N. And then there's jimmycalhoun.com. That's my website. And uh, it's not an elaborate one, but it'll keep you up to date uh, as to what we're doing. And as soon as we know whether, we're, whether the church is going to be meeting in North Austin or the West Side, which we're, in, we're, we're trying to decide what to do in the next, once we're allowed to meet again. So, man. Yeah. man, thanks. Thanks a ton, man. My soul is full. Um, so, so good to meet you, man. And those of you who are watching or will watch later, um, feel free to reach out to Jimmy. Let, let us, let, let him know how you, how you felt about, um, our time to, together. And then also, uh, Exponential is putting on some round tables here in the fall, more so in the winter now. Um, if you can go to multiplication.org slash round tables, we're having a conversation, uh, much like we've had today with Jimmy when it comes to listening, because we know that listening is the bridge that leads to transformation. So go sign up, find one that's close to your city, and uh, be a part of, of this uh, family that's trying to navigate what, what it means to, uh, to belong to one another and certainly to belong to God. So thanks again, Jimmy. It's, it's, I appreciate you, man, and it's good to, good to finally meet you in person. Good to meet you as well, my friend. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer -peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.